Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. We are now in week 12 of our series, The Life of Jesus, and this week our associate care pastor, Josh Masters, will deliver a message about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Be sure to check out our message outline and other weekly resources online at our website, brookwoodchurch.org, and on our Brookwood Church app. Well, good morning, Brookwood. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so glad Doug Wildman, who's our new uh, marriage and counseling pastor, he came down from Canada, which means I am no longer the northernmost transplant. And that is good. Hey, my name is Josh Masters, and I'm one of the associate care pastors here at Brookwood Church, and I'm so glad that you're here. Next week, of course, is Easter, as you probably know, and so that that means that today is the beginning of what some people call Passion Week or Holy Week. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump ahead in our study of the life of Jesus to explore the events surrounding today's celebration. And of course, today's celebration is all about Palm Sunday, right? So we're going to jump ahead. We're going to be skipping to reading 157, 157, and that's on page 184, 184. If you have your book, you can go ahead and turn that to that. If you don't have your book, that's okay. We're going to put the scriptures up on the screen for you. And while you're turning there, let me set the stage a little bit for what's going on when we get to these passages, what's been happening leading up to the passage that we're going to look at. Uh, This is the Sunday before the crucifixion, although some scholars believe that these events may have taken place on Monday. But this is the Sunday before the crucifixion. Jerusalem is teeming with Jewish visitors. It's overflowing with people because all of the Jews have come to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And everyone that's there is wondering if Jesus is going to show up. That's the whisper on the street. Is Jesus going to show up for the Passover? And the reason that they're wondering that is because there's a public order to arrest Jesus. Everyone knows that if they see Jesus, they're supposed to turn him in. So when word gets out that Jesus has arrived in a nearby town with Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead, people start flocking to that town so that they can see Jesus and they can see Lazarus. And because of that, the chief priests are already planning to kill Jesus and they're also planning to kill Lazarus. So where we're at is Jesus is just outside the city of Jerusalem. He's preparing to enter Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. The passages that we're gonna look at today are often called Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's because he's about to enter the city and be presented as their king. He's about to be presented as the Jewish Messiah. So how will the people of Jerusalem respond to the presentation of their king? That's an important question. It's an important question for us too because, make no mistake, the king is being presented to us as well. He's being presented in our lives. So the events in these passages, and more importantly, our response to them is very relevant to our own faith. So what can we expect when the king arrives? What do we expect when the king arrives? We're going to explore five things that are in your outline so you can get your message outline out. We're going to explain five things that you can expect when the king arrives. Again, we're on page 184, so we can start working through our text together. Top of the page. 
When he had said these things, Jesus had just shared a parable, that's why it says that. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And then Matthew further clarifies that there's actually two donkeys. There's a mother donkey and her colt. And it continues, Jesus continues. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say that the Lord needs it or them. The Lord needs it and he will send it back to you right away. So they went and they found a young donkey outside the streets tied by the door. Then Luke tells us, as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? Okay, so let's stop there for a second. Let's try to see this picture in living color, if you will. We know that there are multiple people coming towards the disciples because the text says owners, plural, right? So there's multiple people coming towards these two disciples. They're probably coming toward them. They probably don't look happy. And I doubt that the guy gets there and says, oh, good gentlemen and travelers, for what goodly need do you need my beast of burden? No. No, he's probably going up to them and saying, dude, or dudamus in Greek. He's probably saying, dude, what are you doing? Those are my donkeys. This has all the makings of an altercation, doesn't it? You'd think that a fight is going to ensue here. But look what Mark tells us next. Then they, the disciples, answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. What? What? Well, that wasn't much of a fight, was it? All the disciples said was, the Lord needs these donkeys, he's gonna bring them back later. And the owner said, oh, okay. Now, there is an expectation of hospitality in the Jewish culture, but these disciples just walked up and started taking the two donkeys. We don't know if the owners of the donkeys knew who Jesus was or if what they had heard about his ministry, but the donkey's owners couldn't even see Jesus. Make sure you catch that. Jesus was not in sight. He wasn't with the disciples. These disciples could have been anyone taking the donkey. But somehow, God prepared the hearts of these people to provide what was needed in the moment. God prepared their hearts. And that's our first fill-in on our sheet. When the king arrives, needs are met. When the king arrives, needs are met. Jesus needed a donkey. We'll see why in a couple of minutes. But he tasked the disciples with finding it. What do you think the disciples were thinking when they were sent to go get these donkeys from someone they didn't know without a very good explanation? Based on their track record and the rest of the gospel, they probably didn't think it was going to go very well. And we're the same way. We struggle because we're often more focused on our circumstances than God's provision in the circumstances. When you're praying about some trial that you're facing, remember this, God doesn't always change our circumstances, but he will meet our needs in the circumstances. And he uses the trial to transform us. I remember when Gina and I first got married, we had made some bad choices before we got married. And we had about 
combined about $80,000 in debt when we got married. That was not a mortgage. That was just credit cards and loans. $80,000 we were in debt. When we decided to live more biblically with our money, to follow the guidelines that our king had provided, it was a long, long climb out of debt. It took years. Now, God could have changed our circumstances. He could have made us debt-free as soon as we submitted to his word. But what he decided was that it was better to change us through the circumstances. But every need was met along the way. I remember one particular incident that I was really stressed about. The tires on our car were bald and I had a car inspection coming up and we didn't have any money to buy new tires to pass inspection. Now you guys don't, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. You guys don't have car inspections here, which honestly is a little terrifying. (laughs) The things I've seen drop, Never mind. that's not the point. But in Vermont, you can't drive a car unless it passes a yearly safety inspection. Now, keep in mind, at the time, Gina and I only had about $35 a week in our budget for food. So finding used tires that were going to pass inspection seemed impossible. But we were visiting a friend. We didn't tell him about the need for the tires, but we were visiting a friend. And he noticed the tires, and he didn't say anything to us. But he called us later and said, expect a package. And later that day, not one, but two sets of brand new tires showed up at our house because God had prompted them to meet that need just as he prompted the donkey's owners to meet the need. And Gene and I saw provision like that again and again as God molded us through the struggle. Do you think the disciples were surprised how easily this need was met? I know I have been in my life. So I actually think it's kind of funny that the, the disciples may have been surprised as they were walking back toward Jesus with these two donkeys. But you know who wasn't surprised? Jesus. Look at Philippians 4.19. It's up on the screen. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you're facing circumstances that seem unlikely or impossible, try keeping a journal of all the needs that God meets in that circumstance. And as you're tracking all the needs that God is meeting, make sure to ask God how he wants to transform you through the circumstance or the trial that you're facing. So why did Jesus need this donkey? Let's keep reading Mark verse 7. And they brought the donkey and the donkey, the donkey's colt, to Jesus and they threw their robes on it and he sat on it. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell the daughter of Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The passage Matthew is referencing here is from Zechariah 9.9. And it was written more than 500 years before Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus needed the donkey, he needed the colt to fulfill prophecy. Everything Jesus did 
was in the will of the Father and prepared by God from the very beginning. There were no surprises along the way. Remember, John tells us that Jesus is the word become flesh, John 1.14. So Jesus is always going to fulfill the promises of his word because that's who he is. Prophecies are promises of action that glorify God's sovereignty. Now, the Jewish people seldom understood those prophecies. And we don't fully understand the prophecies that are still being fulfilled today. But make no mistake, God's promises are always kept and they're always kept to the letter. He's always true to his word. He keeps the promises that he makes. Look at Matthew 5.18. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter nor one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. He doesn't just care about his words. He cares about every letter of his words, every pen stroke it takes to make those letters. When the king arrives, promises are kept. That's number two. When the king arrives, promises are kept. And the promises of God are worth clinging to. They're worth so much more than putting down palm branches. Look, look at the type of promises our king offers up on the screen. He says this, do not be afraid for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's a promise God made to Israel. But don't you want a king who will make that kind of irrevocable promise to you when you're going through the fire? You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody here going through a fire? The king has a promise for you. God is consistent and he's trustworthy even when we don't understand how he's fulfilling the promises. Look at the next statement at the bottom of page 184. John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified after the resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. We don't always see how the promise is being fulfilled in the moment. Have you ever felt like God's abandoned you? You're afraid to answer. Okay, I'll tell you, I have. I've been, I felt that way. It's not true, but I felt that way. Most of you know the story of how I ran away from God's calling, how I ignored the promises he had made me. Even though they were clear, I went in the opposite direction. I wandered into the deep waters, just like that verse talked about. I walked through the fire of oppression because of my own choices. I was without hope. I did not want to go on. But even in my darkest hour, God had already ransomed me. And although I couldn't see it at the time, God was already putting things in place to fulfill his promise in my life, the promise that would eventually bring me right here. God will never abandon you and he'll never abandon his word. But sometimes, sometimes, just like the disciples, we need some distance from our circumstances before we can see how God worked in them. 
but the promises are always kept. The other important thing to note about this specific promise is this. When the king arrives, he comes humbly. He comes humbly. Look at the prophecy Jesus is fulfilling by riding this colt. It's at the top of your outline. I put it at the top of your outline. Zechariah 9.9, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is victorious. But he also fulfilled his promise to come humbly. Jesus could have chosen to enter the city on a white stallion wielding a sword. But he doesn't even choose the adult donkey. He chooses the colt, an untrained beast of burden. That's how he chose to be presented as king. And look how Jesus describes his relationship to us. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is still the king. He's still victorious. And one day, he will return on a battle horse in glory. But right now, in this age, Jesus comes to us humbly. Could Jesus force his will upon us? Well, aside from the fact that it's against his character, yes, of course he could, he's God. But make sure that you understand this. His desire is for us to seek his will, not have it forced upon us. Proverbs 3, 6 says, seek his will in all you do and he will show you the path to take. As we continue in our text, Jesus is on the colt that the disciples have brought him and he's about to enter the city as her king. And it says this, bottom of page 184. As he was going along, many people spread their robes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the field. And John further specifies they were palm branches. So these actions were a sign of honor and submission. As Jesus is walking with the donkey, people are taking their palm branches and they're laying them down for him to walk on. And they're laying their clothes down for him to walk on. These actions are signs of honor and submission. The palm branches represent joy and salvation. And throwing your robes down in front of royalty was symbolizing your willingness to let the king walk over you if necessary. Oh, we don't like that, do we? So they lay down their robes and they lay down their branches and they begin to sing praises to him. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna to the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Remember, Jesus is entering the city during the Passover. And that's a celebration of when God delivered the Jews out of Egypt. So there was always this great expectation that the Messiah would arrive during the Passover to deliver them again. Jesus in this moment is being hailed as king. More importantly, the references to the son of David show us that he's being recognized as the Messiah. God's anointed king and savior of Israel. The Mashiach Megiddo. Well, you can imagine this didn't go over very well with the Pharisees because they didn't accept that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought that these actions were blasphemous, so they try to intervene, Luke 19.39. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The enemies of Jesus are desperate. They're desperate here. They're saying, Jesus, stop them. Tell them that you're not the Messiah. Make them be quiet. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were to be silent, the stones would cry out. First of all, that's the coolest comeback ever. (laughs) But it's also a sobering truth. Because Jesus will be praised. And his word will be fulfilled. He comes humbly. But when the king arrives, he comes to fulfill his greater purpose. And that means he doesn't come to fulfill ours. God is sovereign. And as he transforms us, it's to align us with his purpose, not the other way around. Look what Job says about God. I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. But that should actually bring us comfort because just like his promises, God's purpose is greater than ours. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to, to desire and to work out his good purpose. Isn't that verse incredible? He transforms us to desire his purpose and then he equips us to carry it out. His good purpose, not mine. As I said earlier, the scriptures we're looking at today are often called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it is triumphant. It's triumphant because he's fulfilling his plan for salvation. His word and his purpose are being fulfilled. But the word triumphant can be misleading here. Because this is not a moment of celebration for Jesus. On the surface, this parade seems joyful, doesn't it? People are laying down their robes and honoring Jesus with palm branches. And then they begin to sing his praises. But here's the thing. Their motives are not pure. How do we know that their motives aren't pure? Because in a few days, these are the same people who are going to abandon Jesus. Many of this crowd, many people in this crowd are going to be in the same crowd that calls for his crucifixion 
in a few days. It's significant that the word they're shouting is Hosanna. Because the word Hosanna, even though it is a sign of praise, actually means save now. Now being the operative word. Give us what we want now. Focus on us now. Remember the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey? It was to show that he was humble, right? It was to show humility. But the people of Israel didn't want humility. They wanted a military king someone who would overthrow the Roman government. They didn't want a Messiah who would fulfill his purpose. They wanted a Messiah who would fulfill their purpose. And what they wanted in a Messiah was someone to restore the line of David, destroy their enemies, and set up the eternal kingdom in Israel. And Jesus will do that one day. But this first mission was one of reconciliation and peace. Jesus did come to deliver them, but not on their terms. See the difference? I wonder how many times I've rejected the greater purpose Jesus was trying to accomplish in my life because I wanted him to do something else. I wonder how many of us have laid down insincere palm branches. Jesus wasn't fooled by their shallow praises. He knew what was in their hearts. Look at how Luke describes what happened next. This is not in your book, but it's on the screen. Luke 19, 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now, It is hidden from your eyes. Jesus was crying, and not that kind of cry that you cover up at the end of a Pixar movie. The Greek word that's used here for wept indicates wailing with pain and grief. Jesus was visibly and physically shaken up. Why? Because the people that he came to save were choosing their own desires over intimacy with God. They were choosing war with the world over peace with its creator. Later that week, just a few days later, Jesus shared the Passover feast with his disciples. Jesus knew that the crowd who had just hailed him as king was about to abandon him. He knew that. He also knew that every disciple who was sitting at this table with him was either going to betray him or abandon him. He knew that he was going to carry the sins of the world. He knew that he was about to be tortured. He knew that he was about to be killed. He knew everything that was coming, but he used the symbolism of that Passover meal to explain how he was going to bridge the gap between man's hatred and God's love. His perfection. And as Jesus instructed on that night, we still celebrate that plan of sacrifice and reconciliation by eating bread and wine, or sometimes the representation of wine, and we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. 
If you didn't receive a communion bag when you came in, just slip your hand up and one of our ushers will get it to you. But if you already have yours, just hold on to it for a second because we're gonna do something a little bit different with our communion this morning. Let's read from 1 Corinthians and then we'll come back to that. First Corinthians chapter 11 says this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the wine after supper. And he said, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time that you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So the first purpose of communion is a remembrance. It's a time to reflect on the cost of salvation, the sacrifice that was made for our salvation. But there's another purpose as well. Usually we stop reading there as Christians, but the text continues. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. The second purpose for communion is to have a time of self-reflection and examination. And we're gonna focus on both of those this morning. As I said, we're gonna do something a little bit different this morning with communion. Rather than taking the elements all together at the exact same time, I'm gonna ask us to take a few minutes with God silently and reflect on the events of Jesus' sacrifice and also to examine our own relationship with him. As the music plays, just for a few minutes, ask God to show you anything impure in your life. Is there anything preventing you from fully accepting the purpose he has in your life? Pray, maybe for the first time, that you see yourself through your eyes, through God's eyes instead of yours. Spend a few moments reflecting on it means to have the king arrive in your life. And when you're ready, when God prompts you individually, take a private moment with him as you take the bread and the cup. After a few minutes, I'll bring us back together for some final thoughts. Father God, I pray for each one of us this morning. Help us to reflect on the sacrifice you made, but also what you're doing in our lives today. I pray that we would hear in these few moments your true voice and what you want to do in our life, how you meet our needs, how you fulfill your promises, and how your good purpose is fulfilled in us.
forgive me for my insincere palm branches. I thank you that you are a God whose grace is bigger than my failure. We pray that you would bless this time. If you feel like God is continuing to speak to you in some way, stay with him, don't listen to me. But if you're ready and you haven't done so already and you want to join me in taking the elements, we thank the Lord for the bread that represents his body. represents his blood. A lot of times we think of Palm Sunday as the, the happy day of Passion Week, so some of you might be thinking that got a little heavier than I was expecting. Well, the events of Passion Week are dark, but they're also hopeful. So let's try to end on a positive note. When do you think Christ's sacrifice for our salvation began? When did his sacrifice begin, do you think? Did it begin on the cross? Maybe it was before then when he was mocked and whipped. Did it begin when he wept over the city like we just read about? Maybe... Maybe Christ's sacrifice began when he was born in a manger more than 30 years before these events. But I think, I think his sacrifice just started with a choice. Look at Philippians 2, 6 through 8. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. If not, it's going to be on the screen. His sacrifice began with this choice. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Let's leave that verse up there for a moment. Now, there's a lot of theology in that passage. But I want us to grasp this morning what it means for us individually today, right now. What does that mean to you? When this passage says, Jesus was God, but did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that really means? It means that Jesus made a choice. He was surrounded by perfection. God was in a perfect place as Jesus, surrounded by perfection. The angels worshiped him. The angels bowed down before him. He was already king. And he was in a place of perfection. 
But when he looked through eternity and he saw your pain and he saw the trial that your family is going through and he saw your suffering and he saw how all of us were separated from God and unable to get to God, he looked at all that perfection around him and he said, I'm not clinging to this. None of this is worth it if there's not a chance that they can be with me. So he gave up his divine privileges and he was beaten and he died a criminal's death to rescue us. That's what you have to catch this morning. This week is the beginning of a rescue mission. What did our communion verse say? Every time you take communion, you are announcing the Lord's death until, until he comes again. The events of this week are not the end of this story. Most people will tell you that the events of this week are about Jesus marching toward the cross. No. He was marching through the cross. The cross is vital. There is no salvation without the cross. But ultimately, Jesus wasn't marching toward the cross. He was marching toward the resurrection. It was a rescue mission. He was marching toward his resurrection so that it might be possible for us to be with him in ours. Because Jesus always marches toward life. A resurrection is coming. And I know that some of you type A personalities are freaking out because you're saying we're at the end and there's still a feeling. What are we going to do? You're right. There's one more fill-in. After Jesus wept over the city, our text says this. And the whole city was shaken. That means they were in an uproar. They were angry. Who is this? Who is this? And the crowds kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. There were three groups of people at this triumphant entry. The Pharisees, who outward opposed Jesus. The followers, who praised the king, but only as long as they got what they wanted. And those who were ignorant that he was king, but chose anger over acceptance. All three of them, all three groups got it wrong. They didn't accept their king. But because those events happened, we have the chance to get it right. But make no mistake, when the king arrives, a choice must be made. A choice must be made. Who is this? Who is this king? Jesus made his choice, and his choice was you. What's yours going to be? Resurrection is coming. And if you sense that God is tapping you on the shoulder, that he's asking you to make a choice this morning, or maybe it's the first time you've ever made a choice for him, maybe it's about the palm branches you've been lying down, maybe it's about something else, but God is calling you to make a choice. We're gonna have counselors down front here and in the Care Connection room to pray with you, we'll anoint you with oil if necessary. You have the opportunity right now to reach out and touch the king 
don't turn away like they did. Father God, we are so grateful that you came humbly to us. That you're a God that desires a relationship with us rather than forcing your will upon us. That you're a God who would sacrifice everything. That you would leave perfection. That you would leave the worshiping angels to rescue me. Transform us and change us so that we might be more like you. That we might meet people's needs that we might fulfill our promises that we might fulfill your good purpose in the name of Christ Amen Here at Brookwood Church our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life If you have any questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood Church app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.